You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Yasmani Arboleda. Yasmani is an incredible visual artist. A lot of his work focuses on art in public spaces and the connections between people. I met Yasmani through some close friends that we both share. He does a lot of work with artists striving to end poverty. And a few years ago, he was building a piece with Alejandro uh, Rodriguez, who was the, my very first guest on the podcast, and a dancer friend of ours, Cindy Salgado, at Juilliard in this multimedia workshop that we were both involved in. So that's when we really got to know each other better. He's someone whose energy is just infectious. I'm always blown away with the number and the scale of projects that he's involved in. And I'm so glad this worked out. I wanted to have him on for a long time, and it was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy the 73rd episode of The Compass. to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? I found, I feel like for the past 10 years, I've been doing work that's completely driven, driven from my heart. Um, and I feel like one of the things, what got, what took me to the dark side in the past, in terms of my, the past 35 years of my life, has always been when other people have control over the work that I make and the way that I, I'm living. And so when they're, when people are involved in telling me how things are meant to, and sometimes that, that dealt with, I was a creative director at, a, at an agency for five years, there were parts of that that were really challenging because I was having to compromise every day in, yeah. on ideas, on things that were happening in particular projects. Um, and also, th- I, th- one of the biggest things that I've, I think has been a place of vulnerability for me has been the idea of quote-unquote representation or having a gallery that shows my work that makes me money, right? The idea that somebody else gets to speak for me and then sell my the, the products of the, of the art that, are, that I create. Um, and I think in the absence of that, I've been able to actually say, actually, I don't need the gallery to create the work that I do because the work that I do is about people and I can actually engage and find like find specific stakeholders that are interested in, in uh, engaging and, and collaborating with me on particular ideas, and it is about that process. Who are the stakeholders? Who's interested? You know, it's not. Oftentimes, it's not a gallery or a museum. Oftentimes, it's a community organization. It's a particular city. It's a particular set of artists that want to coll- come to me and say, "Well, how do we do this? And how do we think about that?" And and then it's about that ex- that exchange and finding the resources, human and financial to make those ideas come to life. Did you used to feel the pressure to work inside the system? Yeah, like for sure, for sure, because I think... Like the, that kind of success that's prescribed? Right, the mainstream always says, oh, the show at the museum here, and the, the show at the gallery here, and that those galleries are making money, and all of, that, all of those financial models that um, are meant to signify success. I think one of the big things that I think about all the time is how I define success for myself so that I have control. Because oftentimes, again, expecting other people to come to me or when I ask to meet with gallery directors or other other people who are quote-unquote gatekeepers within the art world, um, it's been... It's challenging to, to, to depend so often on, on, on that. And at the same time, my, all, my body of work for the past 15 years has been about depending on other people, but just humans to humans, yeah. right? No hierarchy of this person has that title or I get to you know be shy or scared of asking questions or engaging with the world or with specific individuals because they have power, you know? Was there a particular moment you remember when you like kind of came fully into that realization of like, you know what, I don't... I don't need that. I'm okay just pursuing the things I want to pursue, and I, that's more fulfilling to me. Well, I had a conversation um, shortly after I graduated with my, my master's degree in architecture, uh-huh. and I came to New York, and I think I had had a couple of solo shows uh, between 2007 and 2008, and at some point, one of my best friends in the world who went to school with me, he said to me, well, what is it that you love about this work? Go out into the world and do that pursue that like if you continue to, to make things I think a piece of it was always too that like I was th- I always thought oh if I get press or if people write about me that's gonna be make me feel more important or it's gonna make um it's gonna make me appear successful to other people and oftentimes my friend who worked in PR and has worked with a lot of different companies here in New York said to me do the work if it's interesting people will come to you find like keep doing what you love and in that process the story will tell itself and I think that's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received because it is true. Find the thing that you love and do it. 
find ways, find the stakeholders, find the lovers, find the humans that are going to believe in those, those same ideas and are going to support it. And, and that's been the process, right? Um, I think now more than ever with the work that we're doing at Yale, um, one of the most challenging parts of that process this, in the past four months was that it's a school of business and they brought me in because they wanted to use art as a tool for community engagement and, and for a way to elevate the conversation from the perspective of business and, and leadership. Um, and one of the biggest things in the four months was that balance of how many metrics can we create to speak to this as a success or a failure and all of the boundaries that you have to to create or the systems you create so that you, it can be scalable, repli replicable, it can be a case study, et cetera, all, like all that language. And I think for which me- Which they understand. Which they understand and they want and they require right. for, there's a, there's a need for certainty in the world. And I find yeah. that art doesn't have certainty. Like the beauty <laughs> of what I do is about the nuance and the subtlety of the engagements. Uh, I mean, I cannot tell you how many stories have happened because of this project. Where we received an email uh, yesterday of a woman who wasn't able to give us her mirror uh, for the installation, but she said, can you come pick it up for me? It's my cousin's mirror. She passed away. And what's, what's important to me about that mirror is that I think that when she was alive, she thought that nobody, would under nobody understood her, and I did. I understood her, so I would love her, her mirror to be a part of that installation. Wow. Right? Like, all the little nuanced stories that just have come up and have organically created narratives that I can identify with yeah. and that others can identify with. And so, but what's incredible, and I think, again, this is, I continue to learn every day about the work that I do, is... You have to allow for not knowing. You have to allow for the fact that there are no metrics. Yeah. And some things are not meant to be replicable. And that's okay. <laughs> and I feel like the world right now in the space of fear and in the space of all the things that are happening that are so challenging, they want solutions and they want frameworks and they want to be able to dictate, it looks like this, it's 10 inches, you can hold it, it, it weighs 10 pounds. And I think the space of, of, for, for all of us as artists is to say, actually, we don't know the answer, but let's hold, ex let's hold up experiments. Right. Let's perform things not knowing what the outcome might be. That's so interesting that you come from a background in architecture. Oh, yeah. But this is the conclusion that you've reached with your work. Well, I found that from the very beginning, I can make drawings, I can make paintings, I'm trained, right? Like the, the idea of what art as an object is, like I can make beautiful things. And, and uh, you know, I say that from, from, with a lot of humility because I learned and I, I, I it was a skill that I, that I acquired through time. Right. Um, but the reality is that my interest and my passion has always been people. And so when I thought about spaces and how we inhabit spaces, it was about how we, how we inhabit spaces with each other. Because an empty room is, could be beautiful and stunning, but if it's an empty room and nothing's happening in, in it that's right. compelling, that wasn't, that wasn't it for me. Can you tell, just for the listeners so they know, a little bit about the project at Yale? That's, of course. I know when this yeah. episode comes out, it'll only be up for a few more days, but I'm sure they can look it up online and see yeah. everything you're talking about. And they can participate because the, the online platform, www.spehismo.art, uh -huh. uh, will be a, uh, like a... It'll be ongoing. It, it's ongoing, okay. so anyone can participate. Uh, but yeah, so the, the last project that I've had the pleasure to work on is called Espejismo, a festival of borrowed reflections. Mm -hmm. And the idea came from the Yale School of Management reaching out to me and LimeShift, a company that I co-founded, which brings artists into communities, any given community, public or private, anywhere in the world. And the idea is that through art making, through this co-creative art process, we can actually connect people and place to purpose. And so when we think about any given community's values, what are those values and how do we work together to create something that I call art and that I think is often beautiful, uh, that allows us to relate to each other visually, aesthetically, and, 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 and allows us to actually learn from each other in the process and, and learn about the world that we inhabit. Yeah. And so Espejismo came up really simply. They came to us. They said, you know, how do we use the mission of the school, which is to educate leaders for business and society, and how do we make art with that notion, given what's happening in the world? And so... Um, what was really interesting was that we, I came up with two concepts, a supermarket, which was called Whole Goods, uh, which would be a brick and mortar supermarket that sells intangible goods. <laughs> so a bag of tears, um, a box of resentment, a six pack of regret, right? Like all these notions of things that could be sold at a supermarket, but they're actually human values. <laughs> 
and and that was the original that was one of the original ideas um but because of the timeline and, and the scope of, of the financing of that particular project it would i think it would take at least a year to make it happen right. we wanted to do something in the spring it was really important that whatever we created was reacting to what's happening in the culture right now and so from that space the other idea was called espejismo and literally came up um like all the conversations that we had at yale with all the workshops and all the different pieces of of the engagement uh, everyone who we met professors faculty staff uh, students all said we feel really isolated we want to mm -hmm. engage with the rest of the world what does that mean it, it means engaging with our neighbors here in new haven but really like cut across boundaries of, of nationality, et cetera, to really engage with each other and, and, what, and what it means to be alive right now. And so I literally was at home and I, I, I passed one of the mirrors and I was like, oh, I, I'm seeing myself. And also the culture of selfies, we're always like trying to engage with our, right. the image of ourselves. And I was like, wouldn't it be amazing if we actually let each other borrow each other's mirrors to see ourselves differently through the eyes of other people. Hmm. And from that came the idea of what if we actually have a festival of borrowed reflections and what if we actually physically ask people to let us borrow their mirrors, these vulnerable personal objects, um, and what if we lay those reflections down next to each other and from immigrants and undocumented, uh, from undocumented immigrants, refugees, doctors, lawyers, mothers, uh, avid runners, students, you know what I mean, like all kinds of people uh, come together in this act and they actually physically react uh, reflect in the space but also what if we act we had, what if we created an online platform where everyone could share their reflections and it would they would answer the simple question when someone sees you what would you like them to know which cuts across the idea of surface and, and our physical uh, uh, manifestation in the world as, as humans uh, but also our thoughts our feelings our you know the, the emotional landscapes that that live within us right um, when I was looking through some of the materials you had online this morning, this internet stalking you, um, <laughs> it just made me think of that, you know, that saying that too often I have to remind myself of is that you never know what's going on with someone else. Like that you're walking along the sidewalk and somebody, somebody is pissing you off in whatever way through their body language or whatever it is. And like taking that moment to have a little bit of patience and a little bit of compassion and that, mm -hmm. yeah, Empathy. maybe that person was a jerk to you on the subway stairs, but you don't know if uh, their mom is dealing with cancer right now or like what, what stress they're under. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it makes me think about one of my favorite quotes from Plato, which is be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard exactly, battle. Yeah. And I think of my art practice as enlisting each other in, in being soldiers in each other's arm, armies to deal with the joys and, and the sadness that comes with being human. Yeah. Right? How do we engage each other in that process of understanding the fact that, like, we are vulnerable. It is challenging. We need each other. Yeah. Um, that's really hard to say and to act on, but that's, I feel like that's the space that we need to inhabit to move the world forward in a way that's productive. That's interesting to me that you said, um, I mean, that so much of your work focuses on interactions. And to me, I mean, I don't know you incredibly well, but I've always seen you as such an incredibly social person. And what you were saying right before we started, that you're, like, work best in the morning in a room alone with a piece of paper or with your computer at 5 a.m. Well, I guess... I guess it's fascinating. That, that is interesting because I feel like that, that's the space of reflection, right? Like, yeah. I, I spend... And then it, you and, take it out into the world. And I'm a, I'm a totally a social creature. I'm, an, I'm entirely a social animal. And I, I think that's where my energy comes from. Mm -hmm. But to be able to actually create ideas and engage with myself internally, it's about taking all of, all of those engagements and, the, and, like, the laughter and the the crying and all of the different things that, that happen in the world and then separating yourself and being like, in some ways I think of working as meditation for me. It's, yeah. a, it's a space to meditate on what does this mean, how, I am, how am I feeling and how, do I, how am I engaging with the world as a, in response to all the things that I, that I carry. Yeah. You know? Um, well, part of like the gritty day-to-day -day thing that I like to talk about on this podcast is like how we kind of piece together the financial part of supporting ourselves mm -hmm. as artists. And I know you have this company that you've started, which I assume is a large part of your income now. Um, but how have you kind of found your way through, especially when you'd want to get away from dealing with the galleries and like that mm -hmm. structure, like feeling safe financially as an artist? Well, it's been, a, I think it's, uh, it's been one of the things, obviously as an artist, it's what we all struggle with. Yeah, and it's, and been it's a struggle. always changing. <laughs> and it's always changing. And so I'll tell you that one of the things that I, I, I've been very lucky. For when I moved to New York, I was a, a creative director of an agency called Imagination, which has which has a headquarters in London, and that gave me a really good living, and I was really happy. And I, and I, I it's one of the things that comes up with me all the time because my sisters and my mom always say, "You can always get a job as a creative director. You'd make a lot of money. You're in New York City. You have a lot of experience." And that's absolutely true. But would I be happy? 
I don't think so. I don't think anymore, given all the things that I've done and right. sacrificed to get to where I am. Um, but one of the realities is that the skills that I have as an architect and as a graphic designer and as I, I, do, I do video production, um, I do graphic production. And so, so I quit that job in 2010 and I, I, I went into my art practice full time. In that space, one of the things that's been really amazing and I'm, I'm really grateful for is that I have clients, private co corporations and companies that hire me for our direction of print ads and other things like that. Nice. And just more on a freelance level. Completely freelance. And so what's been incredible is that they, they've known me and they've worked with me for so long, for years, that even if I'm doing a project in Kenya or in Japan, I'm able to do that work online and respond right. to them you know, right away, depending on what the urgency is on the project. But I'm able to do that work without being committed to a space physically. And that, that, that work has been the, the financial staple that I've been able to count on uh, over the past five years specifically. That's great. Yeah, and, and but again, the re, like the, the way that I got connected to all of those places was through friends and through people who knew me. So people who actually said, hey, my friend needs a website. Hey, my friend needs a video. Hey, can we do this? And then from there, people recommend you and, and organically things happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to also be able to say, hey, I need some financial help. Is there anyone who needs the projects out there? Uh, I, can do, I can do your headshots and like, like all the, the things that I can do. Yeah. And so like using all those skill sets to find ways of benefiting financially from the world a little bit to, to sustain the art practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, what does your family make of you being an artist? It's hard. I mean, I think one of the things, and you know, all of, I feel like when I was coming to see you today, I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be a little bit like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Embrace and, it. <laughs> yeah, completely, completely. Um, one of the things that, that was challenging is that I'm Colombian. I mean, my parents are Colombian. I was born in Boston, but I grew up in between Medellin and Miami. Okay. For a lot of those specifically. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was in high school, I, I was the first person to get a 7 in my IB class, uh, which is the International Baccalaureate, and that makes me really proud because I worked really hard and I had a photography practice and a painting practice and a sculpture practice, and it was I was really invested into the arts in high school. I won a bunch of awards. It was really exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, but throughout all of that experience, my mom would see me working on art pieces. She would always say, why well, aren't you working on science or math projects? That's what's important. That's what's going to put food on the table, and that's what's going to feed you. Um, and so my relationship to the, the notion of being an artist really has evolved over the past 20 years because I think even for the first few years of moving to New York, I never said I was an artist. I always said I was an architect. Right. Because of the connotation of the starving artist, which I think is psychologically something that I, I carry a little bit. Is that why you decided to study architecture? I'm going to move well, so, a little. Yeah. Oh, what happened was we actually, um, my mom and I, I got, a bun I got into a bunch of art schools. And I got into a bunch of other schools for other, uh, you know, liberal arts uh, education. Uh -huh. And me and my mom, my mom had a really, me and my mom had a really honest conversation around the idea of my future, my education. And she said, "You being an artist, if that's what you want to be, well, oh, that's always going to be in you. No one can take that away from you. But your education and the way you think about formally training yourself is important. So whatever you choose to do, make sure you're gaining knowledge, and it's not." You know, I think from you know, coming from a conservative Catholic family, they, my mom wanted me to be safe, and so the compromise was architecture. And so I went to school in Washington D.C. and for five years I studied architecture. But I guess the beautiful bargain that I made was that when I got to the School of Architecture, I talked to the dean of the school and I said, "I'm really interested in in participating in this program and, and being here, but I'm also really interested in all of the other arts." So one of the things that I was able to do was to actually go to Italy and study fashion design at Istituto Marangoni, mm -hmm. um, where um, for a semester I, I was there studying fashion. Um, I was able to study at Parsons uh, Design Management for one semester. I was able to go to Brazil and work with a firm that had that incorporated musicians painters and architects in the same space all while you were in grad school all while i was in an under, undergrad, oh, an undergrad and in and, and grad school and so i was able to go away every year and study with a different group of people who was focusing entirely on something that was outside of the realm of architecture and i would bring that back to my studies at, of architecture and i would design a fashion museum and like i would you know interpret and, and one of the things that i think is really amazing about the the, the um, life that i've led so far has been being able to um cross-pollinate across mm -hmm. cultures, across languages, across art forms, acro across social practices. I mean, all of the things that have influenced, the, w the things that I've learned on the road and that now has, have brought me to, to the work that I'm doing, you know, now and over the past 10 years. Right. But it was, it was again, taking ownership and saying, I'm not, I, I'm, I can do architecture and I can do all these other things. I actually began, I, had a, I stopped painting after my senior year of high school and it wasn't until my third year of college where I was broke 
and I was looking for ways to make money that I, ma- I was really frustrated and I spent an entire night making a painting. Um, I didn't sleep and I went to the studio the next day and what was beautiful was that that same day an architect walked by and said how much, I mean, uh, that painting is beautiful, how much would you like for it? He paid me $400 and took it away with him that day and I took those $400 to go buy more black ink and more canvases and I made eight paintings those eight paintings then eventually got placed at a cosi, a coffee shop in, in Dupont Circle. Uh-huh. And an, a, 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 the owner of a restaurant and a, and a um, hotel saw them hanging in the cafe and commissioned me to do 54 paintings, oh which then God. went on to pay for me to be able to travel to Italy and London to study. 54 paintings? 54 paintings that were all like four by fours by four by eights, large paintings for this club that he was opening in, in the Northeast. Jeez. Yeah, so like the sequencing of, of how the world, I feel like there's a beautiful choreography happening all over the, you know, all over your one's life in the world. And if you take the time to actually notice the all the little <laughs> gestures that are happening around you, you yeah. become aware of like all the magic that's out there, you know, just being open to it. And how many siblings do you have? I have two sisters and, and my older sister is an orthodontist. Okay. And my little sister is a manager for a doctor's office. So she, she studied administration, oh. business administration, and does that. And they're actually right now for, for trying to figure out how to work together to open up their own orthodontist um, Are they office. in Boston? They're in Chicago. They're in Chicago. Yeah, with my mom and my nephew. Oh. Okay, well, they're not too far away. Yeah, I go, I try to go often. That's really nice. Yeah. You get to be like the eccentric uncle. I do, and what's amazing is I have a nephew who just, if you see any of the, my videos on Instagram, my little nephew who's two and a half years old, pretends he plays the harp, and he does, like, <laughs> and he dances, and he feels the music, and there's, there's gesticulation in the way that he moves, where I'm like, God, he was born with it. Like, the artistry is in there, and you cannot take it from him, and it's beautiful to watch the purity of how he moves and engages with music and sound. Yeah. Um, it's very inspiring. So simple. Uh, and so I met you through our mutual friends who you do work with at ASTEP. Mm-hmm. Um, are you still really involved with that organization? Yeah, I'm actually, one of the things that ASTEP has gifted me many, many things. And a huge part of that has been the relationships that I've built. I feel like I've, yeah. I've, I've been able to collaborate with so many different types of artists. And I, I want, that's actually how we met also. It was mm-hmm. through Alejandro and Cindy, Alejandro Rodriguez and Cindy Salgado, who, I, who are a dancer and a writer who I work mm-hmm. with, uh, who brought me into the Juilliard program, Inner Arts. Um, but it's all been through artists striving to end poverty. And so what's been really beautiful is that all of these projects, a lot of these projects have been influenced by my relationships to all of these different types of artists. And I continue to be the... Um, I think associate director of communications. So I, I, I create all of the ca- campaigns that are seen online for the for the um, organization and for our print media. So I, I also create all nice. the collateral for the Artist Citizen Conference. Right. And so all the visuals that people associate to the mission of the organization and how people engage with it um, online, which is really a pleasure and another piece of the puzzle that uh, feeds me. Uh, they I actually get paid by the organization uh, every month. Uh, for all the hours that I work towards creating all of those visuals. Right. How about, can we talk a little bit about Sorry, the piece that you made with Alejandro and Cindy? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it feels like we've been working on it for like four years, but I think it's maybe three and a half or, yeah, no, I think it's definitely three years. Um, I didn't get to see the latest version you guys worked on, but I've saw all the ones before that. Well, I think one of the big learning lessons for me, too, as, as an external agent from the theater world, quote-unquote, um, I think it's been just watching the process of how a piece grows from the page onto the stage, onto iteration, onto iteration, and the questions that come up. Uh, one of the big things, uh, I'm a visual, I, I think of myself as a, as a visual artist or conceptual artist, um, and working with a dancer and working with a writer and thinking about what their ideas are in relation to any particular narrative and how we all relate to it, uh, it has been an incredible learning experience. Um, I think with Sorry specifically because I was working on projection and the, the visual aesthetic of the space and Cindy was really focused on how the story was being told through movement and Alejandro was focused entirely on how the story is being told, told, told through word, we understood something about the hierarchy of information and how people receive it. And so it was really interesting to figure out when is dance at the height of, of the language that's telling the story and when is that happening with word and when is that happening through projection because we understand that the moment you have an image up for a projection, people are going to look at it and, right. and the, you know, the, the attention is going to be pulled in that direction. 
if there, you know, if there's dance in the room, then people are going to look at those dancers as they're moving through the space and the words become secondary. So really having uh, silk gloves in thinking through how do these things relate to each other and how do they help support the narrative. And so, you know, I, I feel like one of the, the big things was allowing our egos to, you know, come in and out of the room to be able to serve the story. Because I feel like, you know, if any one of us had been, oh no, it's my, my medium and my medium is what's going to tell the best story. Um, I think this wouldn't have worked. You know what I mean? It was right. that wrestling back and forth and the respect and the generosity of these two artists that allow the work to to be what it is. Right. And it's like my stuff can take a back seat for this. So that the, That's right. The and like figuring clear. out when that is. And, you know, there were moments where there was tension where people wanted their, their medium to be the thing that told that particular point of the story. And we went back and forth. But it was always through conversation and feeling it out together that we figured out what the answer was. Do you guys have a long-term goal for that piece? Well, we're, we've been hoping to have a tour. Um, we've had opportunities come up in Canada, and so we're just figuring out what makes sense in terms of the audience. One of the, the big things that we felt about the project was that we wanted it to be as inclusive as possible, so figuring out ways in which we could actually activate and engage communities that wouldn't otherwise be exposed to theater mm -hmm. um, and, and to bring them in and tell the story and, and have, you know have it affect them through the generosity and the, uh, and the spirit of with which it was made, you know? It was a story about difference, the challenges that come up when you're dealing with people who believe and, and work differently in the world. And um, and so we thought, what if, you know, what if we, what are public schools the answer? How do we begin to tell these story in other places across the country? Because clearly now more than ever, we understand that difference is a thing that's really limiting the way we're acting in the world as, as a collective. Right. I was looking online at your Monday mornings mm -hmm. project that took place in countries all over the world. And so the things that came to mind when you were doing that was like, how did you organize something at that large of a scale? How did mm -hmm. you decide that like, oh, I can, I can do this. I'm not going to do this in the town where I am. I can do this. I can organize this to happen with this many people in a country that I don't live in kind of thing. And uh, I guess tied in with that is, yeah, like permission, like giving yourself permission to think at that scale. Yeah, you know, it's one of the funny things that I think of. I, my friend Leah, Leah Keller White, who is an architect, always says, like, I'm always thinking about how to thread a needle and put it all together with my own hands. Yeah. When I give an idea to you that I think about in, those, in, in that scale, you think about thousands of people putting the needle in and threading the same fabric. Um, and I think, again, it's, I think it's that need for that dependency. Uh, I, um, and, I, and I strongly believe that to exist is a political act. Uh, if to exist is a political act, then to exist is also a poem. And I feel like when I think about all the narratives of any given one, to be honest, it, it, Monday morning happened and I thought about 10,000 balloons and that was the number that mattered, 10,000 balloons. And the reason that number mattered was because in, uh, in the beginning of language, when we think about Latin and Rome, uh, Roman and Greek, um, 10,000 is the number for infinity. Mm. And so it, it means equal to all, and it's available to all. And so the idea was, what if we go to the center of, a, of the city and give away 10,000 balloons of a single color, biodegradable? And what if we honor people who are going to work any, anywhere in the world, but specifically when it started, it was about Bangalore, India, and, uh, and what if we do this as, as a way of, like, every single conversation that happens when, when a volunteer is giving a balloon to a citizen is the art piece. And, and that engagement becomes the bridge of beauty that I'm interested in. And so... Any given project, when I think about it, it's always, okay, here's the idea, I'm going to draw it, I, I make drawings of the ideas that I come up with, and then once the drawing is there, I share that idea over an email, over a phone call, and I say, I'm going to send you some pictures of some drawings that I've made, and then with friends, people that I know who would be interested in that particular idea, the thing begins to grow. Who do we reach out to? And so when it was about Monday morning, I was literally doing an artist in residence program with the Shanti Bhavan project through Artists Striving to End Poverty okay. in India. And when I came up with the idea, I remember that I came up with that idea on December 31st in 2010. And I wrote an email to a friend, which was my last idea of, 20, of 2010 is here. And I shared the idea of what if we give away 10,000 balloons to grown-ups in the middle of the city? And what if we celebrate them going to work in spite of Monday blues? And I shared, and then I went on and I, I shared it with the director of the program that I was at in, in, in Bangalore. And he was really excited. And then the idea was, what if we get all of the students from Shanti Bhavan, a school that educates and forms the lives of um, the untouchable class, children from, from the poorest villages in the south of India, what if they become the people who give away those balloons to honor any given person that's going to work that morning? 
Um, and from that, it happened. It was beautiful. We found resources. Again, we, we got people to support us through paying for the bus, through getting, you know, some sandwiches and food for the volunteers when they were tired at, you know, 1030 in the morning that day. Um, but from doing it there, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be doing an artist in residence program in Japan and another one in Kenya. What if I propose the same project in those cities and study how people behave and react in any given context, given the idea of a balloon, a simple gesture? Of, the balloons are with us at our, at our happiest moments, so they punctuate life in a happy way. What if we actually use that punctuation to alter the narrative of, of Monday blues and, and having to go back to work? In Japan, they actually call Monday blues Sasai Sans Syndrome, which is the cartoon they play on Sunday nights that when people watch it, get, they get depressed because they remind them they have to go back to work the next day. <laughs> and so everywhere in the world, people related to it differently. And it was about, okay, let's do this and let's study how, what it means for different people to engage with those balloons and with, that partic with those particular volunteers in one morning on Monday in any given city. And so from that, I, I pitched it. It happened in, it happened in Kenya. Then it happened. I mean, it happened in Japan first, and then in Kenya. And then when it happened in Kenya, uh, what happened was that two weeks before El Shabab, uh, which is a cousin of uh, the Taliban, uh, you know, right. a militant group in in East East Africa, they threw a couple of grenades at a restaurant, and they were protesting and and and, and damaging the, the fabric of the city of Nairobi. So people were really afraid of being in public space. And so we went to the mayor and we said, is it irresponsible? Should we not do the project? Because it's, it's, it's scheduled to happen two weeks within the, the, right. the, these uh, grenades being thrown in and killing people. Um, and the mayor said, well, it's up to you. And then I went and I said, and I, I sat down all of my volunteers. There were about 100 volunteers that were involved at that point. And I said, do we do this? Is it irresponsible? Do we, what do we do? And one of my volunteers, Kevin, stood up and said, here's the thing. Let's do this and honor people who, in spite of fear, go about their lives and succeed. And there it was. And the answer was clear. And then it became a thing where, like, I understood that the project now belonged to them and it was no longer mine. And the beauty of that and of watching them go forth and make it happen was stunning. And as a result, it was so stunning that we got tons of coverage from all over the world in terms of press. Um, at that point, I was like, where, where do we do Monday morning with balloons and actually create a statement about celebrating people who go about their lives in spite of fear? And so the answer became Kabul, Afghanistan. And a friend of mine connected me to a diplomat who was interested in using art in, a, in zones of conflict, Nabila Alibi. She brought me in. And again, the contrast of the, the possibility and the contrast of giving away 10,000 pink biodegradable balloons to growing ups in the middle of a war zone. How spectacular. It sounds like fiction. And to me, what was what's interesting about any one of these projects is they sound fictional and the construct of them is in a way miraculous because you're entirely depending on people and, and, and on groups. And and if it's not for them, it won't happen. And so, right. you know, having allowing for that vulnerability has been really important through the entire process. And so we did it there and it was incredible. But again, I feel, I'll tell you a quick story of somebody who looked at me and held my shoulder and said to me, before I went to Afghanistan that December, I think at a Christmas party at, at a home in Brooklyn, and he looked at me, he goes, you're going to Kabul to give away those balloons. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Are you, do you have a, um, a death wish? Uh, like, why would you go and do that? That's so irresponsible. Hmm. And I looked at him and I said, here's the thing. Um, and I, you know, I said, here's the thing. That I, I, I could choose to stay here and, and continue my practice here, but the reality is that like I, I grew up in Colo I grew up in Colombia, and when people looked at me and I said when I in the states and I, I said I was Colombian, people often looked at me and said, "Oh my God, do you have some cocaine?" Or like you know, like you know like these stereotypes that are so silly, right. but that really affect you when you're developing your identity. And so I would always respond with. No, I don't have cocaine, but I'll tell you about the beautiful mountains of my country and the incredible flowers and my mom's humor, all Colombian and all beautiful. And so, like, the capacity to multiply the narrative of any given place is incredibly important to me. And so the idea of going to Kabul and working with culture producers, you know, artists, painters, actors, musicians, and to create that narrative with them and to create capacity within them to think, actually, I can do this too. And the idea of 10,000 balloons might be silly, but if we make it happen, we'll be making history. Right and and the the capacity for people to go beyond their limit like beyond their their their, their minds limitations and believe in things that might sound impossible but come true well, and just to create some kind of light or some kind of joy in an environment which must be so stressful to live in yeah and I think I mean, one of the big learnings and again you you kind of look back and learn from from those things is people often when I I spent about seven and a half months in Kabul when I was there people would always a lot of people in development would say to me these people need 
healthcare, these people need food. Why would you spend all this money on doing an art project? And I said, yeah, you can feed them and you can make sure they're healed and they're healthy, but who's gonna feed their imagination so that they can believe in a future that they can build themselves? No, there has to be both. That's right. But the capacity to allow the imagination, like to feed the imagination and to think through what does that mean? Like creating space for, allowing space for creativity and growth. Because if you, there, I think um, one, of, another, one of my favorite quotes is Picasso who said, if you can imagine it, it is real. Hmm. People who have no hope, how can they imagine a future and how can they imagine a healthy, beautiful, right. happy future if, they, if there's no room for artistry and culture to, to create space for them to believe in those things? Yeah. Uh, are there any specific memories of when you gave someone one of those balloons that stands out to you? Well, one Reactions? of the, yeah, I mean, one of the things, what's amazing is that in every country it felt like it, it meant something different and people took it and, you know, in India people were like, is this a national holiday that I had no idea was happening? <laughs> in Japan, they thought we were having a work fair, like we were a company promoting jobs. Um, in, and in Kabul, one of the things that was really spectacular and, and I think really beautiful about, about the process was that people made so many assumptions about what the balloons were about in Kabul. The New York Times said, oh, balloons for peace. A lot of people locally were balloons for feminist rights and women's rights. Um, a lot of people, again, a journal, I heard a journalist speak to the project and say that it was about anti-corruption. Mm. And so these hollow air-filled things began yeah. to hold all of this meaning for all of these different people. And that's, I think, one of the things that made it so beautiful was that people could bring to it what they wanted. How do, how do you, and so it was really stunning to watch people interpret and take it and own it and say, this is about this for me and this is about this for me. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people were like, Afghan men are not going to hold pink balloons. It's never going to happen. You're never going to get men to hold balloons. It's silly. Often, at the very beginning, people also said, there's no way that Afghan women are going to come into the street and give away those balloons because of the nature of, the, of our culture. And I will tell you now that out of 148 volunteers, more than half were women. And we have now thousands of portraits of Afghan men, bakers, mechanics, doctors, lawyers, journalists, holding pink balloons proudly and happily. And so like the capacity to use art to build belief for people has been an integral part of, of the process. And I feel like what keeps me going and what gives me hope, it, you know, with all of these projects, it's always been, you, have no, you build something and you have no idea what people are gonna bring to it. And what they bring to it is the art that I, I, that I, that I, that I work, that I create, I think. Um, is there anything that you've learned over the last couple of years that you're really proud of? Well, I feel like a, a big part of my process has been, I think, teaching myself to be vulnerable and to yeah. speak to the idea that I need support and that I need help. And I think at any given point when, I, when things have been shaky or difficult, it has been about holding on to other people for support and for belief, for belief in myself and in in the world. I mean, I have my dark moments where I don't want to get out of bed because I'm tired and I don't know what I'm meant to be doing and I might, you know, I might be a little bit broke mm -hmm. or I'm not inspired and that happens. And I think allowing room for forgiveness to yourself, allowing room for um, just taking, like, taking care of your own heart and your own mind in the space of forgiveness. Like, it's not always going to be bright. It's not always going to be beautiful and, and it's not always going to be a great outcome. What is the learning process and how do you take that and how do you move forward? Yeah. And I feel like that, that's been a learning process. Like my, my father was assass assassinated when I was 11 years old in Colombia. Oh and I feel like one of the things that I realized in, in my optimistic outlook, the life, life is hard. The world is a challenging place. But it's our choice. It's a choice to be happy. It's a choice you make every day. And I think you, you, there's, plenty, there's thousands of books that talk about that. For me, it's about... Like, I can, I've seen it firsthand. You know what I mean? Like, if you want me to tell you horrible stories of things that have happened to me, I can do that. But I choose to actually look forwards and engage others in the process of finding beauty in the world yeah and and that i think that what that at every point yes i have my moments and it is like there are moments in life that are really hard and difficult but i make a choice to like look for the beauty in people in places in things and i think that's what keeps me going well this is a totally practical question after that one <laughs> um but i wanted to ask you about time management because you are oh. so busy, you're doing so many things. You're I'm your... super disorganized. Well, how do you survive? Um, so many pots on the stove at the same time. So I'll tell you. So I founded a company called LimeShift, which mm -hmm. is, is this company. And I have a couple of colleagues who have worked with me. And people like Nabila Alibai, my colleague Liz Tice, who mm -hmm. went, got her um, Master's of Business Administration at Sloan's, uh, at the MIT School of Business. Um, 
And it's about those collaborations. So all of my work, I think specifically over the past three or four years, has been enabled by them. People who have, like if it's about emailing and coming up with spreadsheets and coming up with decks for presentations and creating all those systems. So I, again, account, I'm accountable to them to produce things. And in that process, they keep me, they keep me going, right? Like they create systems for me to be organized and to respond. And they're like, well, yes, money, you haven't responded to that one email or can you make sure you do this? And <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's a different kind of collaboration, but just as important. It's incredibly important. Yeah. And, I, and I was telling Elizabeth Tais yesterday on the train on our way to New Haven that I strongly believe that all of the work that I've done that in which she has been involved would not exist if it wasn't for her. And I, you know, it's, that's a lot of emailing, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of working mm -hmm. on those things, but the capacity of those things to hold the beauty and the art is just as important because otherwise the art wouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, so I continue to think of ways in which I can um, speak to how important their contribution to the work that I do is. Oh, I wanted to ask how your relationship to New York is going right now. Do you think you're here for the long term or what is your, I know you travel so much, but what are your feelings about like your home base these days? So I've always, I mean, maybe it's a little pompous, but it's true. For a very long time, I was like, I want a life. I want to build a life for myself where I can spend six months in New York intaking. I feel like when I'm in New York, it's a lot of um, consuming culture, going to shows, going to openings, uh, seeing what's being created in the world. And in some ways, when I'm, a, I'm abroad, I'm actually producing and creating and engaging with the world differently. That balance has really worked for me. I think it's been really beautiful to actually through happenstance and through you know all the different things that, that has made, have made it true. Uh, be able to spend so much time away from this country and away from this city and engage with the world, I think that gives me a little bit, gives me sanity. It, it allows me to engage with both and take a breather from one and engage with the other and take a breather right. from that one and engage with the other. And have some perspective on both. Yeah. And they, like the reality of like, yes, I want to be living, I, I want to continue to live in New York City. I love it. I have a huge family of friends here. Um, but engaging with the rest of the world is just as important because again, it does give me that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had any large-scale projects like these in Colombia? No. Uh, I've actually been working and talking to the United Nations about bringing either Monday Morning or um, Coloring Faith to, to Colombia. We, last year, we had the referendum, the vote for, the quote-unquote, the vote for peace. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was really interesting was, again, taking the narratives of these projects and using them for specific um, for specific contexts. And so in Colombia, that meant how do we use culture creators in both small towns in very rural parts of the country and connect them to social uh, culture creators in cities across Colombia so that people can actually begin to understand each other. And in some ways, that same narrative could be applied here in the United States. How do we think through yeah. the communities that, that feel isolated or feel different from the other communities, quote unquote, and how do we use art as a way to build bridges across, across them to create associations that will hopefully create a more productive future for, for it's ourselves. It's funny because now with the internet, like in some ways it feels like those bridges are there, mm -hmm. but in some ways it pushes people further apart or it doesn't do the right kind of work with connecting people with differences in a country that's as huge as this one. Yeah, well, one of the things that was really interesting, I, was, I had the, the privilege of being invited to participate at the uh, Global Culture Summit in Abu Dhabi uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And one of the big topics there was technology and the, and the future of technology in the arts and culture. And for me, one of the big takeaways was thinking through how do we use technology and um, have it, you know, be a, um, a conduit for the, the messages and the work that we're doing, and that's being created all around the world? But in parallel, how do we make sure, how do we make sure that we're con continuing to have these human-to-human -human connections that are irreplaceable? Conversation, engage, like the way that we're looking at each other right now in this room. Yeah, that's so important, and it will never be replaced. And I think the moment we, that we believe that it, it, that can be replaceable or that all, all these other types of engagements through Instagram or Facebook or Twitter um, could replace that, it's not true. It, it, it never will. And I think creating space for both is really important. Yeah. Yeah, you just have to look at the comment threads on like any news article. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you see how divided everyone mm -hmm. is. Well, they're not really seeing each other at all. Okay, is there... So when you're having one of those days where you're feeling really uninspired or dark or... Like you don't want to get out of bed. Are there any like concrete things that you reach for again and again, like a certain book or a certain piece of music or a place mm -hmm. that you like to go? Okay, I'll tell you. Um, I think for me, 
Um, I So in the space of that forgiveness, I allow myself to actually watch TV or watch Netflix or whatever it is in bed. And I'm like, hey, you know what? Just chill out. I don't, I don't, want, I don't need to do a thing. And, and again, because I, woke, I grew up with a mother who always said to me that a lot of my value had to do with my achievements. Yeah. Um, I actually have a second mother. Her name is Jenny Douglas, uh, mm-hmm. who she's the director and the founder of the Brooklyn Cottage. Okay. Um, and she's been, from the very beginning, an advocate of me acknowledging myself and, and holding myself in the space of, I am all that I am, and I am beautiful, even if I don't sit up from this sofa. And there were times in her house when I was living with her in, Bro- in, in Prospect Heights where I literally would sit in her living room on her sofa and cried that cry all day and she allowed the space for me to just be that in that moment and it was it's been such a beautiful I mean it's one of my great it's been one of my the greatest gifts that has ever been given to me the capacity to be to to hold myself and be valuable regardless of any history or any accomplishments or how much I'm making or what's happening in the world um, I am who I am and, I, and I'm a beautiful creature even if I'm crying on the sofa all day long yeah even um, if you don't check off 20 things for That's right. The things today. that activate me to move from that sofa onto the floor and into the world, I would say is that I, I'm a, I love dancing. I'm a very I'm active, physically engaged person. Mm-hmm. And I, I love listening to dance music and things that are like good beats. And literally dancing by myself in the living room or in my bedroom <laughs> physically activates me to feel and, 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 yeah. and act differently. Get those endorphins. Yeah, exactly. And then when I get into that, that space, <laughs> I get really happy. And that begins to redo itself, redo my mental state awesome. uh, through like a little bit of dancing. But it's true. And sometimes I do that on the subway uh, platform. <laughs> and sometimes I do that on the sidewalk. I think I'm in a, in a music video and I'm just enjoying myself. And I'm like, I don't care who's looking and how, like, what they're thinking about me, but I am enjoying myself and I'm going to enjoy these beats. Good for you. Right. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing, but it's true. Um, and then have you seen anything recently that you want to recommend of any art form? Mm, that's a good question. I saw um, Harry Ape. Oh, you did? I oh, did. We missed it. I was so I saw sad. Harry Ape at the Park Avenue Armory, and it was stunning. Yeah. Uh, primarily because the framework, how they set up the stage, they had a rotating wheel that brought the sets in and out in circle. In, it, so the audience was inside of that circle, and, the, oh. and it was stunning to watch the choreography and the movement and how the actors engaged on a platform that was rotating constantly and how things came in and out of your field of vision. Hmm. Um, also, I love that the, the color palette was yellow, obviously because yeah, of the I nature of the show. Yeah, I saw pictures of like the steep seating. But was like, there, were, there was detailing of like how the uh, program was made that was gorgeous. It was a huh. yellow cover on both sides, simple. The, uh, the, the, all the, the, the costuming and the staging, uh, the set was, had specific yellow tones. I mean, it was all yellow and it was spectacular. Hmm. Um, yeah, I was so sad we missed that. Yeah, it was really beautiful. So that's the thing that comes to to mind first. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything else that's recent. Been so I've been You've super been so busy. busy. Yeah, it's of been course. a little crazy. Um, well, I want to kind of wrap it up unless there's some topic that I didn't touch on that you really wanted to talk about. I mean, I guess the only thing that I would say before we're done with this conversation is that I'm really grateful to you because I feel like through the process, through creating the podcast, you've allowed room for so many voices of artists to be heard. And I think it's, I think it's incredibly important. I think it, it has allowed me to relate to others, uh, artists, to other artists in very specific ways, because even though a lot of them are actors or th- different types of makers, um, we all go through the same challenges and to hear the narratives and to hear the stories of people who are dealing with the creative process and how they approach it has been really inspiring. So I just want to say thank you for, for that because, yeah. you know, I think it's, it, it is food that we are, we're giving each other. So. Yeah, you need that community. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, do you want to just say one more time where people can check out oh, yeah, so the Yale Project or anything else you want them to look up? If you, I mean, any of the projects that I've done, you can just um, Google my name and all of them come up because a lot of them are somewhat controversial or you know they're, they're, they're timely they're timely so they, the people often write about them okay. uh, but for Espejismo specifically I would love and I would welcome you and anyone yes. in your community to go to the Espejismo website it's Espejismo E-S-P-E 
J-I-S-M-O.art, A-R-T. And the idea is anyone can uh, can go on the website and submit their reflection. What's been really stunning about the project is that now we have two Pulitzer Prize winning authors who have participated, who have given incredible reflections. We have a Nobel laureate, so somebody who won the the Nobel Prize for Economics submitted his reflection, which is a quote from Alice in Wonderland. Um, And along with them are undocumented immigrants. They are Somali refugees. I actually, one of the most beautiful pieces of the process for me has been, I met uh, um, one of the world's leading voices uh, in the the space of tabla playing, uh, India's most famous tabla player who actually collaborates with Yoyoma. His name is Sandeep Das. And he has a foundation called the Humble Ensemble in India, which educates um, visually impaired children through music. Um, and what was so stunning was that I got to meet Sandeep Das at the conference back in Abu Dhabi. And when I spoke to him, we talked about the idea of what if we get these children who are being who are being educated in music, who are visually impaired, to tell us how they want the world to see them. And what beautiful poetry there is in that. So if you go on the website, you can actually see five reflections of five of those children from New Delhi who are letting us know how they want to be seen, uh, even though their eyes don't work the way that ours do. That's so amazing. I would love to hear from all of from all of your community because a lot of us are artists, yeah. and I feel like representation of the artist's voice within the culture is incredibly important right now. So. Um, I can't wait to to read more reflections from from the community. Yeah, well, I will definitely do one, and everybody, please go check it out. Thank Thank you you. so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Compass Podcast. I'm Leah Walsh. More episodes are coming soon. Please look for us on Facebook and iTunes. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller. Music by Brendan Spieth. Audio assistance from Nick Choksi. And a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.